Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg. The Democratic primary for governor is now a two-woman race, pitting State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz against Attorney General Maura Healey. Senator Chang-Diaz, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your campaign. But first, I'd love to hear more about your personal background. I know your dad was a NASA astronaut. I'd imagine that led to some pretty interesting childhood experiences. <laughs> it did. It did. Um... You know, but when you're a kid, you just like, you don't realize that your what your parents do, you know, may or may not be unusual, right? So it's like, it's just your goofy dad. Um, but uh, he, you know, now as an adult, I realize it's pretty extraordinary. Um, and what he did was pretty dangerous. He, um, he actually holds the record or he's tied for the record for um, the most number of space flights in NASA history. So, um, so yes, many times of, um, you know, being down at Cape Canaveral uh, to watch uh, the space shuttle launch, um, you know, it's pretty heady stuff. And uh, thinking about the trajectory, you know, his incredible, uh, you know, trajectory in life and the way that he came to this country as a skinny brown kid with 50 bucks in his pocket, um, but this monumental dream, right, of his childhood dream of becoming an astronaut and how many hurdles he had to clear um, in order to do that. It um, it puts the challenges that I face in perspective uh, and, you know, gives me no excuse, no quarter, right, for, um, for thinking small. And I believe, am I right that you grew up in Newton? Did you live your entire life in Massachusetts? Take us through your, through your history. Uh, not my entire life, right? So, um, uh, so my, my parents divorced when I was very young. And um, so a couple years, uh, when we were, you know, very little, uh, lived actually out in Oregon, just where my mom had some family, so she had a little bit more help um, around the edges. And then, uh, but she, you know, really missed her her community here um, in Massachusetts. So then moved us back when I was, uh, I think, in first grade. And um, then when I was in high school, I lived for a time in Costa Rica with my dad's family. Um, but yeah, the bulk of it has been here in Massachusetts. And you went into teaching. Where did you teach and how, the, how did that experience affect your views on education, which I know is something that you've made a centerpiece of your career until recent, until today? Yeah, so um, it, it is, um, uh, you know, deeply, it was a deeply sort of imprinting um, experience for me um, that it deeply informs my, my work as a policymaker. But I wanna just back up before the, the time in the classroom, Shira, and I gotta give propers here. You know, folks love to talk about my dad and his story is incredible, but. Um, my mom, who's a social worker, you know, and her, her experience and her story has had an equally important imprint on me. And so I just, you know, want to sort of get, do that honor um, because uh, growing up the child of a social worker is a deeply politicizing experience. And it's actually a huge part of why um, I went into community organizing and public policy, because you see your, your mom, in my case, you know, working with families and uh, particularly women and children who live on the margins and um, you know, see the barriers and the, the obstacles that they hit up against over and over and over again. And um, you know, it really set me to thinking like there's gotta be a more systemic way to solve uh, a lot of these problems that, uh, that her clients are facing over and over again. Um, so, and that actually was a huge part of what pushed me uh, into teaching, right? Um, and what I saw, where I, where I taught was um, the Lynn Public Schools and uh, I saw there, um, you know, very starkly the way that 
the wealth divide and you know the gap between have and have not communities um like you know looking at the experience of my eighth graders in Lynn and you know the difference between what they got you know uh in Lynn versus what I got um in the Newton public schools growing up because my mom had had really sort of cobbled together you know what what resources and more privilege she did have in order to move us there um, because she knew I would get a phenomenal education in the Newton public schools and I saw the the difference right between those two worlds and um the way that that gap uh, narrowed the life choices for my kids inland. And that really um, made me mad, as you could imagine. And it pushed me uh, back into organizing uh, in order to you know, try to accomplish the changes that I thought would bring about systemic change for my students, right? So like the things that I, that I couldn't address from the classroom, the fact that kids would be coming to school in the dead of winter without winter coats. And there was never enough you know, paper in the supply closet, uh, you know, at the school that I taught at. And, you know, just how, um, you know, there were just, the resources were spread too thin um, to, to serve students right. And so I got out there and I organized for, um, you know, voting rights and for more women in office and for progressive policy, because, you know, these are the things that I really saw as barriers to their needs being met. And when, when change still was not happening, uh, I decided to run myself um, and put my name on the ballot. And in 2008, you know, to the surprise of a, a lot of naysayers, um, I won. And, uh, you know, I became the first Latina and the first Asian American to serve in the state Senate. And um, the rest, you know, is history. You, you've witnessed some of that. Um, but that, that's sort of the connection between um, my teaching experience and then what brought me into M.A. Poli, as we say. And, you know, what I saw in the classroom over those years has really deeply informed my perspective as a policymaker um, on the education committee, you know, for many years as the chair of the education committee um, and, and even outside the confines of the education committee, because so many of the things that, you know, we as a state sort of drop at the schoolhouse door, um, you know, don't, th those problems don't start inside the school, right? This, you know, housing crisis that we face um, or, um, you know, the yawning uh, wealth divide uh, between communities of color um, and white-based daters uh, is, you know, those are problems that schools can, don't, you know, ca cause and can't solve by themselves. So we, we have to address those problems outside of the education committee as well. But that's what um, really was the seed of my, um, of my push for um, major overhaul to our K through 12 funding system um, that then became the Student Opportunity Act was what I, saw, you know, and experienced directly my time in the classroom. So why run for governor right now? Well, uh, look, you know, it's not, it's not difficult to see, right? When, when I look around, uh, it, it's so clear that it is getting harder and harder for working families to live in our state, right? We've got uh, housing prices that are going through the roof. We've got uh, some of the worst traffic congestion in the nation. Uh, the fastest growing student debt load, uh, childcare costs, healthcare costs are going up and up. And then we've got the consequences of climate change that are not just around the corner, but they're here, right? We've got already um, just, you know, in the past year or two, record rainfall, record heat in Massachusetts. We've got some of the highest concentrations of affordable housing in flood zones um, here in Boston. So, you know, working families are going to get in it from every side. 
and are just carrying this enormous load, you know, from all of these different systems. And I've seen over my 13 years in office in the Senate that much more often than not on Beacon Hill, we just tell families to wait for solutions to those problems. And um, people ain't got time to wait. And I know that the governor's office is a huge lever for injecting more urgency into our work on Beacon Hill, and that is why I'm running. And you've talked about Governor Baker not acting urgently enough on issues, whether education or climate change or a host of other issues. But when you look at some of the polling that's out there, Governor Baker has been extraordinarily popular. Um, and if you just look back historically, Voters have generally wanted a governor who's more middle of the road. You know, that's how we've gotten a lot of moderate Republicans in office. You've been carving out a niche as a progressive Democrat. Why do you think that's what voters want? Well, listen, I think actually what voters want is not necessarily somebody who's middle of the road, but somebody who is going to keep them as their North Star, right? That is going to be anchored in the, um, in the needs and the fears and the aspirations and hopes of working families in this state. Um, and someone who's willing to be independent minded, right? And um, not just do the go along to get along. Uh, and, you know, folks are fairly cynical about Beacon Hill. And I think some of that cynicism is earned. Um, and so, you know, voting for a governor who is going to be independent minded, um, you know, relative to the powers that be on Beacon Hill, I think is, is what you know, voters are really hungry for. And that, uh, that is what I've got a 13 year record, Shira, uh, of doing, right? And not just saying, right, but being, but actually walking the walk um, and coming off of the sidelines in order to, um, when necessary, you know, challenge leaders in either party or both parties um, in order to drive change. Um, and I also, you know, have worked with leaders in both parties in order to accomplish change. And the Student Opportunity Act was an example of both of those things. Um, and then, you know, not just be willing to sort of disagree, right, but then build the, the deep and wide coalition that can put change in the end zone so that we're actually accomplishing some change in people's lives in the real world. And, you know, that is ultimately I think, what voters are looking for in a governor. And, you know, Charlie Baker, I think, has been a beneficiary uh, over the last several years of um, that desire for, you know, desire for some sanity and some independence relative to the National Republican Party. Um, but, uh, you know, not voting for Donald Trump has not uh, fixed our traffic congestion problems here in Massachusetts, right? And it hasn't made uh, you know, the crushing student debt load that young people are carrying um, go away. Um, it hasn't made childcare more affordable in our state. And those are the problems that the next governor is going to need to carry and focus on and, you know, relentlessly drive towards solutions on. And you mentioned your work on the Student Opportunity Act, which is the landmark uh, school funding overhaul. But I actually am remembering back to one interview I did with you. It was in your office after midnight on July 31st, 2018. Oh, you have a historical record here. Yep, <laughs> last day of formal sessions. And you had just failed to reach an agreement with the Weed House negotiator on the big education funding bill. And that was the bill that would become, the, it was a precursor to the Student Opportunity Act. And the SOA did pass the next session. You worked on it, but you weren't the committee chair anymore. And that kind of, I think, raised the question for some people of, are you able to negotiate and compromise in a way that will be necessary if you're the governor trying to work with legislators on Beacon Hill to get things done? 
Yes, the answer is undoubtedly yes. But here's the thing, Shara, you know, and this again gets back to the issue of being, of, you know, we need, a, we need a governor and we need leaders on Beacon Hill who are anchored in their commitment to working families. And, you know, could I, look, I was literally, you said it, right? It was like midnight when we had that interview, right? I stayed at the negotiating table until, you know, like 11.59 and 59 seconds um, in order to, you know, I wasn't going to walk away, right? And I, that will continue to be my methodology, right? I am here to rack with anybody. Uh, who wants to get work done on behalf of working families in Massachusetts. And we had bipartisan sponsorship um, on the Promise Act uh, and on its precursor legislation. Um, the, uh, you know, it, it, it really crossed the aisle. But ultimately, it's not about, you know, I could have agreed to things in that conference committee that would have gotten the bill out. Um, but they wouldn't have been things that actually solved the problem, right? We have nation leading opportunity and achievement gaps in Massachusetts. And we have school districts of every shape and size, right? Rural, urban, suburban, small districts, large districts that have been you know, carrying the, the load on their own uh, in many ways uh, for a generation, right? For a quarter century since we first put our school funding system in place in 1993 because the state was progressively walking away from its share of that partnership. And you know, so we could have gotten a bill done um, in 2018 if I had been willing to agree to something that was just a band-aid, right? And, and it would have been nice to be able to come out and celebrate a political victory and pat myself on the back and put out a press release, but it wouldn't have actually solved the problem, right? And so, yeah, sometimes I, you gotta be willing to stand up and say, nope, you know, this is not it, right? This does not solve the problem and I'm not gonna be dishonest with the people of Massachusetts about what this actually is. And so, you know, I, there, was, there was a line below which I was not willing to go. Um, and what I said was, we're gonna come back again stronger, right? We're gonna build a bigger, badder coalition, right? And bad, you know, by bad, I mean in the Michael Jackson kind of a way. Um, uh, coalition that is gonna put the real win, right? The win that's actually gonna solve the problem into the end zone. And that's exactly what we did, right? We went out and we built a deeper and wider coalition that made it impossible for Beacon Hill to say no to the needs of working families and low-income children. And instead of agreeing to something that was about $300 million worth of funding um, for schools, in the end, we got a package that was $1.5 billion with a B um, that was actually right-sized um, to solve the problem, right? Of closing those opportunity and achievement gaps. And that difference of a billion dollars or more was specifically targeted to low-income districts, right? Districts of highest need. And I'm proud now, sure, when I go out across the state, you know, over the past seven or eight months, um, and I, I'm on the campaign trail, I've had the opportunity to, you know, just come into contact with some school principals and superintendents and, and school district leaders. And I say, you know, the first SOA dollars are starting to hit the streets. Like, what are you spending your first SOA dollars on? And almost all of them have told me what they've chosen to spend their first dollars on is social emotional wraparound services um, for students, right? So there's kids out there today that have access to a school social worker or psychologist that didn't last year. Mm -hmm. And you know that's real change that families in Massachusetts can feel in their real lives. And we would not have gotten that um, if I'd just gone for the political win, but not actually solving the problem. And in your campaign, you've laid out some pretty ambitious plans. Um, but I'm curious, practically, are these things that you can actually achieve if you do win? I mean, just for example, you've talked about establishing a carbon-free electric grid by 2030. 
how do you do that without massively raising electricity prices? Is, is that practical? Yeah, it's a great question. And don't let me off the hook. I'm going to answer that question, but I want to just come back and, you know, to your previous question, um, you know, get back to the root of it, which was, you know, is, you know, can I, can I make a deal? Right. Um, and the other example that I will put up for you is the police accountability law uh, from 2020, right? Very, you know, the tough negotiation. Um, and, uh, you know, I was one of the architects of the Senate bill. Um, it's a bill that I'm extraordinarily proud of. Um, it did a whole host of things, you know, ban chokeholds, curtail the use of no-knock warrants, um, create an affirmative duty to intervene. Um, and reform um, uh, qualified immunity in our state in Massachusetts. We were in a very you know, uh, intense conference committee negotiation on that bill for the next several months after we got the Senate bill passed. Um, and in the end, we did not get everything that I wanted right, in conference committee. Um, we were not able to get to agreement uh, between the House and the Senate on qualified immunity reform. That was hard to let go. Um, that was a difficult decision that I circled up with advocates, you know, in order to make in communion with them, you know, not just on my, you know, as a sort of, you know, person up in the ivory tower or Beacon Hill who makes those decisions alone. Um, and we're coming back and we're gonna still, you know, I filed the legislation, we're still fighting for qualified immunity reform. But, you know, I said, look, the rest of this bill is hugely important progress and let's take this win, right? And we now have in Massachusetts, uh, we passed that bill, right? I didn't want, you know, we didn't get nothing out of that conference committee. We passed that law. It is a nation leading model. And we now have the only uh, police oversight board statewide, you know, at the state level in Massachusetts among the 50 states that is civilian controlled um, among, you know, many of the other reforms in that bill. So, you know, there's examples of both ways. Sometimes you got to stand on the line and say, I'm not going below this line. And sometimes, yeah, you do have to take less than 100% in order to make huge progress forward. Uh, and I've shown over my time in office that I can do both. And I think that does lend itself to that, the, the question that I asked you of, you know, you have these ambitious plans, you know, I'm thinking the energy one. I'll also throw out their um, universal affordable preschool and debt-free college. That's something that, I mean, the Mass Budget and Policy Center has estimated the cost for universal preschool is $5 billion itself. How do you, are these plans of yours realistic? How do you pay for them? Um, with money, Shira, <laughs> um, you know, and look, I'm no, I'm not trying to hide the ball uh, on that. We were, we put specific plans out there, um, and you know, have done the homework um, on looking at financing options for them. Um, because the truth is, you, you know, these are transformational changes that I'm talking about. Um, you know, to to create a universal early education and care system in our state would be transformational for families. Uh, you know, take a huge bite out of income inequality um, in our state um, and, you know, and poverty and educational opportunities. It would deepen our bench in terms of the workforce that we can create here in Massachusetts, which we know is a huge barrier. Um, it's a constant, you know, frustration and complaint that I hear from business leaders is that they don't have the talent, uh, you know, that they're looking for. Um, so, it would, you know, it would be transformational in really positive ways. That's going to cost money. You, you can't get a big transformational change uh, in most cases without spending some money. Um, we also, you know, are one of the wealthiest states and one of the wealthiest nations in the world, Shira. And so we've gotten ourselves into this sort of scarcity mindset um, over the last, you know, few decades. 
Um, but then we have to look up, you know, pick our heads up and look around and look at states like, uh, you know, Alabama, right, that the Boston Globe just told us is lapping us uh, in terms of standing up uh, early education and care systems that are, uh, that are approaching universal. And um, we have the resources to do this here in Massachusetts. You know, we have to have frank conversations about progressive revenue reform, right? That's why I support um, the fair share amendment, AKA the millionaire's tax. Um, it is why we need to do things like close corporate tax loopholes um, that make it easy for companies to, you know, multinational companies to offshore their profits into, you know, um, offshore tax havens. Um, but we do have a pathway to fund these things in Massachusetts, and we got to get more ambitious about doing that. So on the energy plan, for example, are you going about just raising energy prices? No, look, there, it, we have, we are in an incredible position here in Jer where uh, we are in what, you know, some people call the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind uh, here in Massachusetts in terms of the natural resources that we are right next to uh, in the, you know, with our, our coastline. Um, Massachusetts could meet, we could meet Massachusetts needs, you know, electricity needs um, with offshore wind alone, I think it's either 16 or 19 times over, right? And we shouldn't do it with well, offshore wind alone, right? We should have a more diversified portfolio, but the technology is there, the natural resources are there. Um, we need to couple, um, solar energy into our portfolio. Um, we need to make investments into our grid um, to make sure that we have the storage capacity, right? To, um, to rely 100% on renewable energy for our electricity uh, consumption. Um, but the, the natural resources are there, the technology is there. Um, we have to have the political will to make the transition. You know, are we gonna have to do some things differently? Yes, we are. Um, you know, do I, I do not know exactly what the, uh, you know, next seven years, uh, eight years are going to look like in terms of, you know, price fluctuations. Um, you know, none of us know that, right? Just looking at, for example, what's going on in, in Ukraine right now, right? We couldn't have predicted that three years ago, five years ago. It's going to have an effect on gas prices. Um, so there are going to be a lot of variables in the market over the next decade. Um, but what I do know for sure is that we are already paying for the consequences of uh, unaddressed climate change. And that costs money too, right? When you see you know, record rainfall and record heat levels, um, uh, you know, climate, uh, volatile weather events uh, in Massachusetts, all of these things come with a pretty steep price tag. And right now those costs are being externalized uh, you know, fossil fuel companies are externalizing those costs onto the general public and most especially onto low-income people, uh, communities of color and immigrant communities who are bearing the brunt of climate change. We have to socialize those costs across all of society so that we are uh, doing this work together to make the transition. And not for nothing, right, in terms of when we're talking about economics, Jira, do, making the transition to a green energy economy is not a, about just sort of, you know, sucking up the costs of uh, you know, making a transition to clean energy. But there are huge economic opportunities in front of us to grab, right? We can create literally tens of thousands of new jobs, good paying jobs, family sustaining jobs in Massachusetts by growing these industries here in Massachusetts so that we're not you know, buying our energy from other states and other countries. Um, so there's economic development opportunity here as well. 
So before you can get to implementing any of these plans, you've got to get past Attorney General Healy in the primary. She's raised more money than you, early polling shows her ahead of you, better name recognition. Why do you think you can win the primary? So Shira, you know, I, we have seen um, so many examples, uh, you know, time and time again, uh, where people powered movements um, have taken on and won against, you know, establishment powers in Massachusetts. And I'm always surprised at how quickly we sort of forget the lessons, right, of those, of those examples. Um, where we have seen that, you know, that kind of uh, upset of the of the um, conventional wisdom happen. Um, this race is going to be one on the ground. Um, we have been building our organizing infrastructure for the past eight months, right? I got into this race, uh, you know, not because I, I look, I didn't get into it because I thought it was going to be easy. And none of the fights that I've taken on over the past 13 years have been easy ones. Um, but they've been important ones, right? And, and uh, you know, won them time and time again. Uh, but I got into this race eight months ago when, uh, you know, presumably Charlie Baker was gonna be uh, the, you know, incumbent that I was gonna be challenging. Um, and we have been uh, building the organizing infrastructure across those eight months and we're hitting our, our all of our internal marks and that's the most important metric, right? We have um, just this past month, over 50% of our donors um, to the campaign we're first time donors, right? So we are primed for growth. We've built a coalition of over 70 uh, state and local elected official endorsers across this state. Um, we got the endorsement last week of Progressive Massachusetts. We had the early endorsement of Neighbor to Neighbor Massachusetts. You know, together they represent uh, thousands and thousands of members across this state. Um, so we are showing up, we're campaigning, I am really, you know, I'm thrilled, frankly, by the enthusiasm that we're seeing out there uh, on the campaign trail, both over the last several months and most recently at the caucuses. And at the end of the day, you know, this race is going to be won on the ground. And that's why we are focusing on building that organizing infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, it, you know, in the end, we have to remember, and again, we've seen this time and time again in Massachusetts, that uh, it's not money that wins elections, it's people that win elections. And you can learn more on commonwealthmagazine.org. Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Sharon.